0: Amen, let us pray. Father, first we thank you for your word, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, we thank you for this great psalm that we just read that we'll be reading for the next few weeks as we look at the blessedness of your word the blessedness of the word of God, the excellencies of your word, and Lord, how your word should guide our life. Lord, as Christians, as believers, especially here in uh, the United States, we have abdicated our responsibility to be faithful to your word. We have allowed the culture to dictate to us how we should live, how we should think, the culture we've allowed, the church as a whole has allowed the culture to tell us that your word is not sufficient for all matters of human life. That your word is, is outdated, it is archaic, it is homophobic, it is transphobic, it is, it is anti-intellectual. We've allowed the culture to, to beat us down and cause us to go away in shame when we proclaim your truth. Lord, I come this morning praying and proclaiming that your word is truth. Your word is the only source of truth. Your word is the only source of righteousness and morality and holiness. Lord, your word alone is truth. And Lord, I'm praying this morning that the church the true church rises up and be the prophetic witness that our nation needs that our world needs that the true church rises and proclaims the truth as it has been revealed in your word through the personal work of jesus christ from genesis 1 and 1 to revelation 22 and 21 lord that is your word you have spoken And, Lord, may the true church rise and be the prophetic witness and speak your truth in a world that is in chaos. And, Lord, why is the world in chaos? Because the world rejects you. The world rejects your truth. Man has been deceived by our enemy, the devil, to believe that it is not your truth that matters, Lord, but our truth, what we believe in, uh, is truth. Truth has become subjective. But, Lord, if truth is subjective, then it's not truth at all because truth has to be based on some type of objective reality. Truth that is subjective, based on feelings, based on the whims of, of our sinful wills, Lord, that is not truth. And so, Lord, as a church, We are to be a prophetic witness. We are to declare your truth. Because, Lord, when you boil down to it, it is either Christ or chaos. And, Lord, what we see in our culture, what we see in our world is chaos. We see confusion. We see moral confusion. We see spiritual confusion. We see economic confusion. We see uh, governmental confusion. Uh, confusion, political confusion. Lord, confusion always rises where, where you are put to the side or put out. There will always be confusion when God the Father and His truth is rejected. And Lord, that is why we see our nation the way it is and the shape that it is in. And Lord, I pray for here at the Living Churches. I was reading and meditating on this morning and last night that we unashamedly proclaim the truth on our jobs, in our homes, with our family members, with our co-workers, with our friends and loved ones in the public square that we not be ashamed of your truth. Father, I was reading last night in in uh, First Kings about um, the prophet Elijah who confronted King Ahab who was a wicked king who married a wicked woman Jezebel who, who slayed uh, your prophets and who led her husband to worship uh, her pagan god she was a pagan high priestess herself and Lord this was the king of your people who was wicked and you called Elijah the prophet to call Ahab to repentance, to call Ahab to worship the only true God. And Lord, that is the prophetic witness that we ought to have. We ought to be like Elijah, who is a type of Christ, calling people to worship the one true God. And Lord, that is what you call the church to do, to, to stand against the kings and rulers of our age and call them to put aside their idols and to worship the one true God. Lord, that is the witness that we must have as the living church to not not bow the knee, to not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation for those who believe, as Paul proclaimed in Romans 1. Lord, I pray for our church and for our sister churches, our brothers at ABC and Grace Fellowship, Christian Fellowship, Redeemer Church, uh, Mountain View Church, iron the baptist other like-minded brethren that that we do not bow down that we proclaim the truth that we charge our members to proclaim the truth also and lord we pray that all of our members take heed to what the pastors are preaching as we preach your truth that is the way lord we affect change in our culture it's to change hearts, and hearts cannot change until the gospel is proclaimed. It is the gospel that changes men's hearts, and I pray that we all see that. And Lord, we pray for Christian men and Christian women in Washington D.C. to proclaim the gospel to this this administration, this wicked administration that is proposing wickedness and and immorality biblical immorality and proposing wicked uh, laws we pray Father that you send prophetic witnesses their way to the White House to the cabinet members to the legislators and to the senators to repent to turn to God and be saved because their judgment will be great if they do not turn to God. Lord, send bold Christian witnesses up there to proclaim your truth to those people. And Lord, as your truth is proclaimed, that you may soften their hearts to receive the gospel message unto repentance. That is what we pray, Father. And even down in uh, our great state of Alabama, down in Montgomery, that A prophetic witness or witnesses may go forth down in the halls of the the state Capitol in Montgomery on Dexter Avenue to the governor's office and her officials her chief of staff her cabinet all the way down to the state senators and state representatives Lord that the gospel may proliferate in all of our uh, seats of power from the federal level to the state level to the local level that the gospel may proliferate that it may spread and change men's hearts and transform our nation transform our world that is my prayer Lord. that is the prayer of a lot of pastors around this nation and around this world and we pray Lord that you be faithful to hear it and to answer it and to bless it Lord we come down to the preaching of your word we pray, Father, that all of us respond to the gospel message when it comes to us. That, Lord, you fill us with your spirit, give us illumination. That we may hear the parable of the sore, That our hearts may be good ground. Show us your truth, Father, this morning. Convict us of our sins. Lead us to repentance. And Father, we pray that you may convict unbelievers of their sins as they hear this message this morning. And that you may grant them repentance as they hear this message preached. And fill me with your spirit, Lord, to preach it well. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen. We're in the parable of the sower part two. So let's turn to Matthew, the 13th chapter. Last week we looked at part one, we looked at the parable itself. The week before we looked at the explanation of the parable to see why Jesus taught in parables. And so this morning we're going to look at the meaning or the explanation of the parable of the sower. And just by remembrance again, as we'll uh, be reminded in this parable, the true king is the sower. The true subjects are the good ground. The uh, the counterfeit subjects are the wayside, the stony ground, and the thorns. And we look at this in our introduction again in the Unusual growth is the fruitful and unfruitful growth in the same field. And the exhortation to hear is the conclusion of the parable. So this morning we're going to focus on verses 18 through 23, which is the explanation. So he says, therefore, of course, therefore is therefore a reason. It's uh, piggybacking on what Jesus said in the verses before. Leading up to this. Where he told the disciples. Blessed are their eyes. For they see and the ears. For they hear. Okay. So he says. Therefore hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom. And does not understand it. Then the wicked one comes and snatches away. What was sown in his heart. This is he who receives the seed by the wayside. Remember the wayside is the path. But he who receives the seed. On stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word. And and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. But he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it and who indeed bears fruit and produces. Psalm 104, Psalm 60, Psalm 30. So, again, this is a parable of the kingdom. These are observations here. I don't have them on outline uh, this time because it's, it's, it's a lot of them. But, In this parable, again, we see the structure. The true king, being Christ, is the sower. As we talked about last week, the sower is Christ, or is the gospel evangelist. But in the parables of the kingdom, remember, all kingdoms have to have a king. So the true king is the sower. And all kings have subjects. Subjects are those who are people who live in his kingdom. Okay, that's what we call subjects, the people who live in the kingdom. So the true subjects are the good ground. So all kingdoms have true subjects and counterfeit subjects. The counterfeit subjects are those whose hearts are the wayside, the stony ground, and the thorns. Just as in any country, you have true citizens, and then you have people who are not true citizens. Okay? In a kingdom, you have people who truly belong to the kingdom, And those who don't in the kingdom of God, you have those who are true subjects or true members of the kingdom of God. And those who claim to be but aren't those are the false subjects, the counterfeit. And also in this parable, we see unusual growth. Unusual growth is the fact that you have fruitful and unfruitful growth in the same field. You have some seeds that grow and some don't, all in the same field. And then the exhortation to hear, where he says, therefore hear the parable of the sower in verse 18. That is the conclusion of the parable. So this way he's giving his conclusion. Now also this parable, along with the other parables of Matthew, are what we call kingdom parables. And if you read the whole 13th chapter, you will see quite a few parables parables you'll see the parable of the sower you'll see the parable of the weeds which we'll talk about next week you see the parable of the mustard seed and then the leaven and then the parable of the hidden treasure the parable of great price the parable of the dragnet you have all those just in the 13th chapter these are all parables of the kingdom they relate to the kingdom of God They are mysteries revealed for the church age which is the age in which we are living Okay, From the time of Christ's death until his second coming. That's what these parables are referring to. The church age which we are in. And the church age began when Christ died and ascended to heaven. And we saw it usher in in the book of Acts. So the sower, again, as we talked about last week, the sower scatters the seed indiscriminately. He just, he scatters it out. He doesn't put it in certain places. No, he scatters the seed indiscriminately. And the seed, which is the gospel message, is not corrupt. It is not impure. It is a perfect seed. The, uh, as we said last week, the problem is not the seed. Just as when the word of God is preached. The problem is not the word of God. It is the heart of man's, I'm sorry, it is, the, it is man's heart that has a problem with the word of God. It is not the word of God itself. There's nothing wrong with the quality of the seed. The seed is not responsible also for the soil it lands on. Or the reception depends on the receiver. Not on the seed itself. So when people hear the word of God, it is their responsibility to receive the word of God. We always praise the Lord when we are visitors. And the thing about it is that when a visitor comes, you know, I remember mean, when I was a young preacher and I would invite my friends when I was in, in, in college, you know, and it was a Sunday where I was preaching because I was narcissistic and selfish and was all about me. And I just wanted to invite them to come see me preach. You know, I was very sinful to think that way, but... That's where I was at that time. And I would invite my college friends, you know, when I was preaching a certain Sunday, I would invite all my college friends to come see me preach. And of course, since I knew they were coming, I would kind of soften the message a little bit so, you know, they wouldn't get offended by what I was going to be preaching about. That was sinful. What we do is we proclaim the truth no matter what. We don't do it intentionally to, to hurt people, but at the same time, we have to proclaim the truth of the gospel because the seed of the word of God is not, there's nothing wrong with it. The problem is not with the word of God. The problem is with the person who receives the word. And I learned early on as a young minister that you can't water down God's truth to make it palatable for unbelievers. They have to pull themselves up to the standard of God's word which caused them to Repent. And believe the gospel. So in this parable we see. That the seed is not responsible for the soil. Or the reception. The reception depends on the receiver of the seed. Only a heart. Eyes and ears. That have been illumined by the Holy Spirit. Can bring about a fruitful response to the word of God. God. Because, again, it is the Holy Spirit who reveals the truth of God. Jesus said this in his discourse to the disciples in John 16. He says in John 16, verses 12 through 15, Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, this shows that the Holy Spirit is a person. He's the third person person of the Trinity he is not an it it says when he the spirit of truth so this is one of the names of the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth meaning that truth comes from the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit only reveals truth so Jesus says when he the spirit of truth has come he will guide you into all truth For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, for he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has of mine, therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. So what does the Holy Spirit do? He reveals the truth of Christ to Christ's followers. So the only way a person can understand gospel truth is if the Holy Spirit reveals that truth to him or her. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2 that these things are only spiritually understood. That a natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit because it is foolishness to him. Yes, we invite unbelievers to church. We're supposed to. But we can't make unbelievers understand the gospel. Now, they have questions. We answer them. But we can't make them understand it. That is the role, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit of God to do that. We just pray that as they hear the gospel, Father, reveal your truth to them as they hear it. That's what we have to pray. That when they hear it, yes, guess what? They're supposed to be offended by truth. Because they're not of the truth. You don't make the truth offensive, but the truth is already offensive. Think about, you know my old folks, when well, my parents used to say, when I got in trouble for something and I lied about it, what was one thing the things a parent would say? You should have told the truth when? The first time. You should have told the truth the first time. You didn't have to lie. Why? Because we as parents know that that's all you want from your children and all the truth. I lied to my parents when I was a kid. Was it right? Of course not. Yeah, it may get us out of trouble, so to speak, but it gets us in trouble with God because we have to give an account for being a liar. The truth, whether, it's, whether it hurts or not, is still the truth and unbelievers need to hear the truth whether it hurts or not doesn't matter it is supposed to hurt why because it's true they need to know that they're sinners they need to know that if they don't repent and turn to Christ and be saved that they're going to spend an eternity in torment in hell They need to know that. So we, as we evangelize, as we declare the truth, as we see here in this parable, we pray that God, through the Holy Spirit, reveals this truth to them so that their heart can receive it, so that their ears can hear it, and that their eyes can see it. So what's the big idea? We're going to examine the exhortation to hear with understanding the parable. Jesus' explanation of the parable and the implication and applications of this parable. So our first principle is hear the parable of the sword. Hear with understanding. So first thing is that the the ability for the disciples to hear was given to them by the sovereign will of God. We see this in verses 16 and 17, which you talked about last week and the week before last. it was God who gave them the ability to see and to hear and to understand the parables and to understand the word of God as Christ was declaring it to them. God is sovereign over the hearing of the gospel. Only through the Holy Spirit can we hear the word of God. But seeing and hearing and understanding are necessary for conversion. It is a good practice to hear and read over and over again the word of God. It is it is a good practice to do that. To understand it, it is a good practice to read over and over again. We should never neglect that practice because it contributes much to our understanding which God gives. Second Peter says desire to send the milk of the word. That we may grow by it. We, we desire the word. We, we read it over and over and over again. Like we're reading through Proverbs right now. You know I'm doing these, these little monthly challenges. Just to help all of us. Including myself to, to grow in grace. By reading the word. By feeding ourselves a steady diet of God's truth. Because guess what? Our world is coming up against God's truth. And if we don't know what God's truth is. We're going to fall for the lies. The first nine chapters of Proverbs are talking about what? Wisdom, God's wisdom against the, the, against the foolish, against folly. What God's wisdom does, how beneficial God's wisdom is. That's what, that's what we've seen in the first nine chapters of, of Proverbs so far is, is God's wisdom and, and how wise God's wisdom is and, and how good and how beneficial godly wisdom is versus the wisdom of this world telling young men to stay away from unwise women because they'll lead them down a path of foolishness and and folly. Telling all of us as as believers that the wisdom of this world is, is foolish. And so the discipline of reading and hearing the word of God helps us to understand the word of God. If we don't read it, we're not going to understand it. If we don't read the Word of God, we're not going to understand the Word of God. If we don't read the Word of God, we're not going to know God's truth and how to defend the truth and how to proclaim the truth. Christianity is not an anti-intellectual religion. That's what the atheists and secularists think, that, that Christianity is for dumb people. That's what they think. They think it's anti-intellectual, but it's not. It doesn't mean they have to have 150 IQ. What it means is that we, as Christians, have to be thinking people. And how do we think? We think according to God's Word. We think according to the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of the world, because the wisdom of the world is foolish. And so when we think about the discipline of reading and hearing God's Word, that is the way that we learn to understand. It contributes to our understanding which God gives. So as we read, we say, God, give me understanding of this passage. Give me the understanding of this chapter in Proverbs. Give me the understanding as I was reading last night in First Kings about Elijah, uh, you know, going before Ahab and going before Mount Carmel uh, against the 400 prophets of Baal. Lord, give me understanding of this. What, what does this mean for us as a, as a church? We have to pray and ask those things. And God, that's one of those prayers that God would delight to answer because then God wants us to understand his word. <laughs> Amen. So Christ says here, the parable of the sower. That's principle one. Principle two is Jesus gives the explanation of the parable. So we're going to look at the four soils here. Just kind of look at them observationally. So first he says the wayside. We'll stay on this one for a while. He says here, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom, verse 19, and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received the seed by the wayside. So, three things happen. First of all, the wayside hears the word. The person the wayside here he comes to church he hears the word he may nod and agree or she okay i understand that i get that but they don't understand it they leave out and say man i don't know what word was talking about but i was agreeing with it <laughs> you ever done that before you 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 agree with somebody and then you, you finish talking to them like, oh, no, I don't understand the thing they were saying. That's the way the wayside here is they they hear it, but they don't understand it. They don't get it. Like, I, I, I don't get it. And then what happens? Satan comes and snatches away before it even takes root. That's what he does. And then Jesus continues. Verse 20, but he... Receives, see on the stony places, and see he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. They hear the word and they're happy. They say, I heard from the Lord today. The Lord really spoke to me. A preacher, that word really spoke to me today. I needed to hear that. But they have no root in themselves, they make an emotional. Uh, As as John MacArthur said, they make an emotional, superficial commitment to salvation in Christ. But it is not real. They have no root in themselves. They endure only for a while. They may come to church for a little bit, you know, make that effort. They'll come trying to please people or trying to make themselves right with God. You know, whatever the case may be, They'll, they'll come to church for a little bit. You know, they hear the preaching, they'll agree with everything, you know, they'll do all that. They endure for a while. But what happens? When tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. And we're we're, going to explain these in, in, in depth in a little bit. But that's what happens. They endure for a while. When life gets hard, when the promises of tribulation come, as Jesus said to his disciples in John sixteen and thirty-three, in this world you will have tribulation, you will have trouble. But be of good cheer; I have overcome the world. But Jesus did promise his saints that we will have tribulation in this world. We will have trouble. We have persecution. We will have hard times. That is part of the Christian life. But for the Christian, we have an overcomer, and that is Christ. But the person who's stony ground, they hear it, they receive it with joy, but they have to no root in themselves, they endure for a while. But when tribulation comes, because the word promises it, they stumble, they fall away. Because they believe the lie that a lot of preachers tell folks that if you just follow Jesus, your life will be easy. You check off all the boxes, you pray, you go to church, you read your Bible, you give to the church, you have nothing to worry about. Life's going to go your way. You're going to be successful. They treat treat God or they treat church, they treat Christianity like it's some type of uh, get-rich, trouble-free life card. Like, if you just believe in Jesus, uh, you'll never have any more problems. That's basically what you're telling people. All your troubles will go away. Like, treat Christianity like it's life enhancement. Like living your best life now, or living your best life, manifesting everything. That's the way they treat Christianity, like it's a life improvement. You want to improve your life? Believe in Jesus. You want to have success in life? Believe in God. That is so antithetical to the gospel. So when hard times do come, what are they going to say? Oh, this is not what they told me would happen. They told me I wasn't going to have a problem. They told me my life was going to be fine, that I was going to have life improvement, that I wasn't going to have to deal with my own sin and, and, and you know, my own sorrow, my own sin. I, you know, I was going to be happy all the time. I was going to have positive energy, you know, uh, all this new age stuff. I I thought all that was going to happen. And when it doesn't, next thing you know, they're not going to church anymore, they're not praying anymore, they're not reading the Bible anymore. None of that. That's the stony ground. The thorns, Jesus says here, verse 22, he receives, see them on the thorns, and see who hears the word, and the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. (laughs) They hear the word but the word is choked out by idolatrous interest by idolatry. And what are those two idolatries? The cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. Do you know that worry can be idolatry? Do you know that? Let me tell you how. It's not a sin to worry. It's not a sin to worry. Worrying is a natural human response. Doctor, you go to the doctor and, you know, hey, uh, we see some cancerous cells in your breast or in your colon or, you know, your prostate is swollen or whatever the case may be, you know, in your lungs or whatever, I would worry. I would. All of us would, right? You get that diagnosis. Now, a natural response is worry. But the sin comes where you become consumed with worry. And that's all you do. You become so paralyzed because of worry that you don't want to do anything else. You become paralyzed by worry you become consumed with it and after a while worry becomes an idol you begin to worship worry you you feel like you can't function without worrying that you got to be worried about something that's when it becomes idolatrous so when Jesus talks about the cares of this life he he's talking about all the all the worries of this world all the cares of this world. They they become idols and they begin to choke out the influence of God's word because that's the last thing you're thinking about is looking to God, is looking to Christ, is going to the word. The last thing you're thinking about is that. First thing you wake up in the morning, you're thinking about what you're worried about. You're not thanking God for the day. You're not praising the Lord for the grace of a new day. You're not going to the word and and, and reading and praying to God and trusting in him and depending on him. And putting all of your hope in him. Instead, you get up consumed with worry. And Jesus said in Matthew 6, Do not worry about what you shall eat or what, uh, with, uh, what you shall drink or with what you shall be clothed. If you take care of the birds of the field, uh, birds of the air, if you take care of the lilies of the field, will it not much more take care of you or you of little faith? But the cares of this world can choke the influence of the Word of God in a person's life. So that's what happens with the thorns. They hear the Word, but the cares of this world and also the deceitfulness of riches, and I'll break this down a little bit, The, the excessive worry over money and riches and wealth and possessions. That becomes your God. You can be poor and worship money, don't just think it's just for rich people. You can be a poor person. I won't even say poor, especially here in America. Even poor people got cell phones. <laughs> okay? Even poor people got cable TV and streaming services. Now, in a lot of areas of this world, you got poor people that don't even have a TV. They have to wear sandals and don't have paved roads and vehicles to get in and drive around. That's poor. You can drive through uh Constantine and see satellite dishes everywhere and see people on iPhones, the iPhone Max plus the thirteen hundred dollar iPhones with the three camera things on the back, and yet they stay in public housing. So you don't have to be rich to worship money. You can be poor as what the world calls poor, the nation calls poor. And still have a, a problem Worshipping money so I want to set that straight So we talk about the deceitfulness of riches It can be for anyone in any Social ladder Any rung on it But That obsession with riches That obsession with possessive things The, the deceitfulness of it Because the deceitfulness says If you get these things you're good And what do those things do They choke the influence of the word So that's the stony ground here. But then you have the good ground, as Jesus says here, which is the last of the four soils. He who receives the seed on the good ground, verse 23, is he who hears the word and what? Understands it. That's the difference. The other three didn't understand it. And indeed, they bear fruit. Some yield a hundredfold, some yield sixty, and some yield thirty. So you note that all four soils heard the word, but only one understood or applied what they heard. That's what it means to understand to to apply it. It's one thing for us believers to hear the word; it's another thing to apply it to our own hearts. That's what that's all I go as we. Now, remember, do, whenever the word is broadcast, whether it's being preached, whether you hear it on radio, whether you're reading it yourself, whether someone else is sharing it with you, it is always being proclaimed. And what we ought to do is take what we hear and do what? Apply it to live it out. That's how it bears fruit. It's not going to do it by osmosis. It's just it's not going to just happen. We have to apply what we hear. We have to apply what we hear. Unfruitful soil has a variety of possible characteristics that presents obstacles to fruitfulness. That's what we're going to see in these three. Number one, the wayside is the careless and indifferent listener. This person hears the word but has no understanding of it. They have dull ears and blind eyes. They're not, the thing is, they're not openly hostile to the gospel. They're not those people that say, I don't want to hear, get that out of my face, I don't want to hear that. No, they do nothing with what they hear. There's no application of the word of God. So that is the careless or indifferent hearer. A person who is indifferent to be indifferent means to be apathetic. To be indifferent means I, I could care less. That's what it means to be indifferent. Like it doesn't matter to be me either way. That's an indifferent person. Like they just could care less. It doesn't. It's not a big deal to them. It's not a big deal to them that they hear the word and do nothing with it. That, 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 that's not a big deal. Ah, you know, that's an indifferent here. That's a careless here. They're not taking heed to what they hear. They they could care less. To me, that's a bad place to be. You hear the gospel and you're saying in your heart, mm, that's not a big deal." Repentance, ah, mm, hell, I'm not worried about that. I'll, I'll talk my way in, you know, whatever. I give God the big wink, you know. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's not, not a big deal. But look, Satan is relentless in snatching the word of God away as soon as it is sown. He's relentless in doing that. He never stops doing it. He snatches it up even during the hearing of it. And he does it in the least obvious ways. He uses deceit. And this is what John MacArthur said in his uh, book on parables. He says, Satan uses, okay, he usually confuses people through the false teachers who come in the name of Christ, but subtly attack or undermine the truth of the gospel. He also exploits the sinful human passions, fear of what others might think. Pride, stubbornness, prejudice, or various lusts or desires. He appeals to the fallen heart's love for pleasures of sin. He knows that people love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. That's John 3 and 19. And he takes advantage of that. That's what John MacArthur said. And he is so right. Satan confuses people through false teachers. False, false teachers, they confuse people. Why? Because they're preaching a Christ who doesn't exist. They're preaching a false Christ. And they are confusing the many people who follow them, who listen to them. They're confusing them. And that's how Satan does when he snatches the word away. He, he uh they underestimate, rather, they undermine the truth of the gospel. And like he, uh, MacArthur said, Satan also exploits human passions. Fear what others might think. Some people are afraid to go to church; that they're afraid of letting the gospel change them. Why? Because they they, they don't they don't want to lose friends. They don't want their family members looking at them funny. I was the first person saved in my house. It was it was my brother, myself, and my father. We were living in a a duplex. There was a four rooms. There was a front room, a, a second room which was like the bedroom, it's like a walkthrough. And had yeah, the next room was the kitchen and a bathroom. That was that was what we lived in. It was it's, it's probably no bigger than that front room in there. It was a duplex so a, a guy lived on the other side. A guy named Ligon that's all we knew him man That's where we lived. Me and my brother slept on a sleeper sofa. No AC had a fan in the winter that I was always cutting on and cutting off. And I started going to church. God saved me. And my brother and my dad was picking with me because I was different. I was young. I was only, what, 19 years old, you know, but they started picking on me. They gave me a hard time. They did. Why? Because they weren't saved. Y'all out there, them holy rollers, you know, because it was a holiness church. You know. Y'all out there, them holy rollers. Them sanctified, them sanctified. You had a sanctified church, you know. I, I was at a sanctified church, as they call them. You know that all them holy rollers out, the minigals out there, you know. And and uh so that's the way it was looked at. But it was it was mocked. But God gave me the grace to persevere through that. Some people are afraid to be seen in a church because they're afraid of what people are going to say about them. They have fear of man. They don't want to invite their friends because they don't want their friends to see what kind of church they go to or what's being preached. That's how Satan deceives people, as MacArthur said. They have fear of what other people think. Pride. Stubbornness. Satan sows all those things in people's hearts. And that's how it is snatched away. And and MacArthur said it so true. Satan appeals to the fallen heart's love for the pleasures of sin. People don't want to lead their life of sin. Why? Because they love darkness, as I said last week. They love darkness. They love sin. They love the allure of sin. And they don't want the power of the gospel to change their life. Why? Because they love their sin. They, They hug on to it. It's like they drag on to the legs of sin as, as as you know, a person's dragging holding on for dear life. That's what it, they cling to their sin. And that's how Satan just snatches it out because they love darkness rather than light. The heart of this person has been hardened through constant rejection. This is the wayside, the careless, indifferent hearer. their hearts have been hardened and this is not a good place for them to be it reminds me of uh, King Zedekiah he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart this is what the Bible says in 2 Chronicles 36 verses 12-13 through this is right before Jerusalem fell uh, to the Babylonians this is talking about Zedekiah Zedekiah was 21 years old When he became king. This is verse uh, 11 of 2 Chronicles 36. If you're taking notes. Zedekiah was 21 years old. When he became king. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. His God. And he did not humble himself. Before Jeremiah the prophet. Who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. And he also rebelled. Against King Nebuchadnezzar. Who had made him swear an oath by God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. He stiffened his own neck. He hardened his own heart. I don't want to hear the word of the Lord. I don't want to hear the word of the Lord from the prophet Jeremiah. That's what he did. He stiffened his own neck. And that's what the indifferent person does. They They just can care less. They're careless. They they don't care. So they. what do they do? They stiffen their necks. In other words, they become stubborn. That's what it means to, you know, when God called uh, Israel a stubborn and stiff-necked people. <laughs> they refuse to bow. But that's what happens. And then we have the stony ground here, who's the shallow, superficial here. If this person hears the word. It has an initial reception, as I said, of, you know, a good sermon pastor, or I believe it, or I receive that word. I'm going to do better. Or they may even say, I believe the gospel. The seed enters a little bit, but has no root. He wants to endure, but he is a false convert. He does not persevere until the end. He is only there for a while. He does not see his commitment to Christ all the way through. He doesn't do like Paul told Timothy in Second uh, Timothy uh, chapter 4, verses 6 to 8. Listen to, to Paul finishing strong. Paul says, For I am ready to be poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Look at those three words. He fought, he finished, and he kept. He says finally there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge will give to me on that day. That day when he comes back. That day of judgment. And not to me only but also to all who love his appearing. That's what it looks like to finish as a believer. You fought. You finished. You kept. Who calls him to do that? God. But this Superficial, shallow hearer, they say, "I believe, they say, "I hear it, they say, "I receive it, but they don't have a persevering power in them. They are a false convert. They're only here for a while. They don't see their commitment to Christ through. They drift away. As the writer of Hebrews 2 and1 said, "To not drift away when you hear the word. Take heed to what you hear, lest you drift away. That's what the writer said here. Hebrews 2 and 1, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. We sing a song in my old church. If your soul is not anchored in Jesus, you will surely drift away. I feel like singing now, but, (laughs) But, you know, we see this all. If your soul's not anchored in Jesus, you will surely drift away. If we don't take heed to the word, we will drift away. That is what the stony ground person does. They don't don't see that commitment through. They're an outward Christian. There's no inward change in their hearts. They're good until life gets hard. They're good until finances get tight. They're good until they have a tough spot in their marriage. Until other matters of life discourage them. And when persecutions or tribulations come, and tribulation comes from the Greek word to press or to squeeze. It comes from the Latin word tribulum, which is like a roller used by the Romans to press wheat. They called it a wheat press. It is like the, is the equivalent of our steamroller. So tribulations are things that do what? They press us in. They, 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 they squeeze us. They tighten their grip on us. But when that happens, this person complains about their lot in life and they uh, make excuses constantly. They forsake the promises of the word. They forsake the glory of Christ. Suffering on their behalf. They forget that Christ suffered worse than any other person ever because he was innocent, he was sinless. Christ is the only person who ever lived who did not deserve what he got. Christ, the only innocent person who's ever lived, he's the sinless Lamb of God without spot or wrinkle Christ is the only person who never deserves suffering we deserve it because we're sinners we live in a sinful world and we sin and sin brings what? suffering sinful choices that we make bring suffering but this person doesn't believe in the glory of Christ's suffering The heat, MacArthur says this, I'm sorry, uh, Dr. David Brown said this in his commentary. The heat of tribulation or persecution because of the word or the trials which their new profession brings upon them quickly dries up their relish for the truth and withers all the hasty promise of fruit which they showed. How frequent are these kind? This reminds me, I promise you, and I talked about this when I was a young Christian, it seemed like when I got saved, that's when all my problems started happening. That's what it seemed like. Oh, man, I had it better when I was out in the world. That's what some people would say. I heard a lot of people say that. I used to think that myself when I first, when I, when I first got saved. Why? Because I, I was living in sin. I was out partying and smoking and drinking and doing all this other stuff, and I thought I was living it up. And then when I got saved... I stopped doing those things. Hanging out with my friends, doing all the partying and stuff like that and and, and, and everything. I look at them like, man, I was having a lot of fun when I was out in the world. But that's what people think when they're superficial. When tribulation comes or trials come because of our new profession of faith. Again, it goes back to what I said earlier. You can't tell people that they're not going to have any trouble when they become Christians. No, the blessing is you have a hope. <laughs> you have a person in Jesus Christ who endured for you, who suffered for you, who suffered in your place, who we place our hope in, who has laid up a place for us, that we will be with him Forever that this earthly tabernacle, this earthly body will be done away with. We have a hope that unbelievers don't have. But when you're superficial, you don't think like that. This stone the ground here is the person who, in spite of all the encouragement they received to be faithful to the Lord and his church, you know, they're receiving encouragement from the saints, hang in there, I'm going to pray with you, you know, we're going you know, to come alongside you and help you walk through this together. In spite of the warnings received from Scripture to take heed to what you hear and all those things, in spite of all that, they're motivated for a while, but then they fall away. And their final state is hardness to the gospel, and they want nothing to do with Christianity and the church. In my thirty-one plus years of being a Christian, I've seen that happen to many people. Many people. You encourage them, you do your best you can to disciple them and encourage them. You warn them through scripture, they're motivated for a while, then they say no. Hey, where's so and so? Man, they they just gone. They don't go to church no more. the the husband not loving the wife anymore wife not loving the husband anymore I mean just they're gone it's sad I've seen it happen to by the grace of uh, but for the grace of God so go I so go all of us but I've seen it happen to countless people they say you know they want anything to do I got a, a pastor friend like that friend knows what I'm talking about. Planted his church a few months before he planted ours. Now he doesn't even go to church anymore. 12 years later. It's sad. He's he's unfortunately been divorced twice. The the lady he's with now, his girlfriend he's living with. Gave up his church. You know, we got the keyboard from his church and you know, we were bros. We used to go work out together and play racquetball down here at Parker Memorial in that gym together and, you know, worked out in the gym. We did all that together. We were bros. Now you didn't go to church anymore. That's what happens with this type of here. Then the thorns, the idolatrous double-minded here. This is the soil that has the ability to make seed fruitful. But the seed has to complete with weeds which choke the word out. This person hears the word but is not mixed with faith. When you hear the word, people, you have to mix it with faith. Remember, coming to church is not just an exercise of going through the motions. We have to receive it with faith. The writer in Hebrews 4 and 2 says, For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. He's talking about them, Israel, the promise of rest. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. That's why Israel could not enter God's rest. Because God gave them his word. God gave them his commandments. But they did not receive it with faith. Because what do they do? They continue to rebel against God. They continue to worship idols. Despite the Ten Commandments being given, they still built the golden calf. Despite the command to not marry the foreign women, because when, in the day that you do it, they will take your hearts away from me, despite receiving that command by faith and believing it, guess what? They did exactly the opposite. And they married the foreign women. And guess what happened? Those foreign women brought their idols in. Those foreign men that, they're, 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 that the Israelite women married, guess what? They brought their gods in. And they say, no, you had idolatry within the camp. Why? Because the word that God gave them, they did not receive it by faith. Faith meaning believing in that word. But instead of believing it by faith, this word is choked by worry, anxiety, preoccupation with recreation, pleasure, and hedonism. Hedonism is the belief that pleasure or happiness is the most important goal in life, feeling good. Because what did Jesus say about the thorns? It chokes the word. The cares of this word. The seedless of richness, they do what? They choke the word. They choke it. Luke says in his uh, version of this parable, Luke says that the hearer is choked with the cares, riches, and pleasures of this life. Mark, in his version of this parable, he has he to this list the desires for other things entering in. Choke the word. The hearer is, This hearer is more preoccupied and excited about worldly endeavors and not the things concerning the kingdom of God. When they're sitting in church and the preacher's preaching, their mind is way somewhere else. They're not tuned in to what's going on with them. They're not concerned about the things of the kingdom. They're concerned about their own kingdom. They're concerned about building their own kingdom, being their own God the cares and pleasures of this life. It's not that this life doesn't have pleasures, but they are preoccupied with those pleasures. They love the world. 1 John 2, 15, 16 tells us not to love the world, nor the things that are in the world. But they love worldly endeavors. God gives us all things in this world richly to enjoy, but not to be preoccupied by them. It's okay to do recreation, but don't be preoccupied by it. Don't don't let it be your cause and goal in life. They are in love with the cares of this world, the the present age. That's what he means by that. The cares of this world, the, the present age in which we live. And the consequences are devastating. They receive conviction in the head. And this is what Robert Hawker, the Puritan, said about this. He said, they have received conviction in the head of the importance of salvation, but from never having felt it in their heart and no saving grace having passed upon them, this world's riches are preferred to the riches of eternity, and their hearts, like the ground overrun with thorns, are wholly unfruitful. And that is so true. This world's riches. This world's fame. This world's acclaim. Mean more to them. Than their eternity. That's how this here is. This idolatrous. Double minded here. J.P. Lane said. The expression deceitfulness of riches. Does not primarily. Uh, ex- uh, apply to luxuriousness he says it refers to the deceitfulness of false confidence in this worldly ground of substance substance of things that sustain you so he's saying the deceitfulness of riches deals with the fact that people place their confidence in what their riches their possessions what they have what they own what they buy and they see other people and they say, I want to be like, I want to be rich to the point where I don't have to worry about anything. I don't have to worry about paying my bills. And all of us aspire to that at some, some point. All our bills paid off. And the first thing people say is, you won't have a worry in the world. That's, that's what we think, right? Just give me $100 million. I, I won't have anything to worry about. True in a sense but at what expense that's why Jesus said it is is impossible for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven it's not the fact that a man being rich it's the fact that his riches is who he is that's where their heart is in their riches because we seem to think that if we just had enough money, we wouldn't have to worry about money anymore. But that's a lie. People who have money want what? More money. Look at us and our little rat race down here. We want more money. What makes you think that if you got more that you're not going to want more? That's how the human heart works. That's the sinfulness of our heart. You can have $100 million, but then you want $200 million. And if you got 200, you want 300. Nothing is ever going to be enough. And then you're going to worry about spending all that money. So now you're going to be, have another word is spending all your money. Man, where's all this money going? And when you start seeing that bank account go down from, think, think about people who won, think about Van Holyfield and Mike Tyson, they won hundreds of millions of dollars in their boxing career and, and ended up going bankrupt. MC Hammer, you know, he, he, he went bankrupt. $50, $60, 70000000 million. Dollars because guess what that's not where your substance lies but when you're this hearer you think that your your, your, your your manner of life what you have is what is the most important thing that is the deceitfulness of riches that money is going to solve all your problems some theologians said, more money more problems I don't know what theologian said that. I know Puff Daddy made a song called More Money, No M- More Problems with uh, Notorious B.I.G. Maybe it was those philosophers who said that. The more money you have, the more problems you see. Because the deceitfulness of riches lies to you. And what does that do? It chokes the influence of the word that said that that's not the case. Amen? Then we have the good ground. The understanding here. What are some characteristics of this? This person hears the word and understands it to the point of application and they bear the fruit of the word. Hearing combined with understanding produces the fruit of saving faith. Mark 4.20 says that These hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit. Luke 8 and 15 adds, Having heard the word with a noble and good heart, kept it and bear fruit with patience. There's something to be said about understanding what we hear. The fruit reveals the character of the tree. This is what A.T. Robinson said, In his commentary back in 1933, he says, The fruit reveals the character of the tree and the value of the straw for wheat. Some grain must come, else it is only chaff, straw, or worthless. The first three classes have no fruit, and so show that they are unfruitful soil, unsaved souls, and lives. There's variety in those who do bear fruit, but they bear some fruit." The lesson of the parable as explained by Jesus is precisely this the variety in the results of the seed sown according to the soil on which it falls. That's why he said Psalm one hundred, psalm what, sixty, and psalm thirty. In other words, the fruitful here is going to bear some fruit. There's no such thing as bearing no fruit as a Christian. You're going to bear some. You're not going to bear none. Now, the Lord is the one who makes the soil good ground, not the hearer. Now, what are some fruit that are produced? First of all, they come by Christ Jesus. Next, you have the fruit of the spirit. Galatians 5, and 23. And you have the fruit of growing in the faith. That's first, second uh, Peter uh, 1 5 3 11 adding to your faith that is some of the fruit so the truly regenerate person will reproduce or produce fruit by the inward working of the word by means of the Holy Spirit it will come in degrees but it will be evident a person who's a new Christian right out the shoot, they're not going to be fruitful right away but over time, over the course of five years, 10 years, 20 years, 25, 30 years, you're going to see the fruitfulness of the word of God in their life. It is going to manifest itself. There's no such thing as an unregenerated. I'm sorry. There's no such thing as an unfruitful, regenerated Christian. Every Christian is going to bear some fruit. Some more than others, some to a greater degree than others but still, there's going to be a fruitful Christian. Amen? So implications here as we get ready to close. Number one, true believers are those who bear spiritual fruit. Okay? True believers are those who bear spiritual fruit. It is not the profession of faith, but the perseverance in faith that counts. Number two, the hearer is responsible for what he hears. People are responsible for their response to God's word. What we do with what we hear matters. This is to everyone adults, children alike. We are responsible for what we hear. Each time an unsaved person hears the word, guess what? They're responsible for it. Number three, the response by faith to the gospel will always be of small number. That's something we must always remember. Think about, you have four soils and only what? One soil out of the four was good ground. That's the way it's going to be in this life. Not everyone who hears is going to receive, is going to believe. That's why many who profess Christ are not truly of Christ. They may say they are, but they're not. Very few will be saved. And number three, pray as we evangelize. Because we have to depend on the work of the Holy Spirit when we speak the truth to people. God works through the Holy Spirit. And only God can give a person ears to hear. God is sovereign over the sower, He is sovereign over the seed. And he is sovereign over the soil. We pray for the Lord to cause his word to land on the good ground of our hearts. Because he is the only one who has the power to do it. Amen. Let us pray. Father, help our unbelief. Lord, help those who hear this word today to receive it by faith and be saved. We pray, Father, that as your word is cast forth, whether it's through the preaching, through the reading of the word, through you revealing yourself in nature, that they see the word that they hear it and that you give them understanding father I pray that you bring sinners to repentance as they hear your word and that you encourage the faithful encourage the saints to continue to be fruitful to continue to cooperate work alongside the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that we may be fruitful Christians in Christ's name I pray amen